We'll do it live. Okay. Oh. No. We'll do it live. Fuck it. Do it live. I can, I'll write it and we'll do it live. Fucking thing sucks. Hello, hello. Welcome to Open Wide for some soccer. My name is Seth Fertelny. Alongside me, Thomas Floyd, and, uh, well, I guess I guess that's it for this evening. Pablo Maurer had some car troubles, I guess, and is currently stranded somewhere on the side of I-66, I think. Yeah, I don't know where he is. It's, uh, it's a little scary. I hope you're okay, Pablo. Pablo. Thinking of you. Yes. Um, so, this is a experimental podcast. We don't have Pablo, and more importantly, we don't have the soundboard tonight. I really don't know why anyone would want to listen. If you turn it off at this point because you know there's no Fennels in soundboard or Jurgen Klinsmann soundboard, I won't blame you. I'll be a little offended, but I'll understand. Right. Well, Pablo's actually going to go back after the fact and edit that and edit this podcast, so I think what we should do is leave like five seconds blank right now and allow him to put in some of the Ben Olsen sound. Okay, let's go now. He doesn't f-ing listen at all. Fucking Jamaican ref last night. All right. So I'm assuming you have all had your fill of the Ben Olsen soundboard now, so we can get into the episode. We're going to talk a little DC United and then uh, finish up with some uh, U.S. national team stuff. Uh, but we should begin with uh, yesterday's 1-1 draw with the Colorado Rapids at RFK Stadium. Uh, you know, we talked last week about the 0-0 draw that United had against the New England Revolution last weekend, and we called it a bore draw, and it really was. And I have to say that even though the game yesterday with Colorado had two goals, it was worse than the New England game. I didn't hit the DC United availability, but both Pablo Mastroeni and Sam Cronin from the Rapids basically apologized for the game. <laughs> they were like, uh, we know it wasn't the prettiest game, we've been trying to play more proactive soccer, and that didn't really happen today. It didn't. It didn't at all. Uh, and of course, ESPN paid the price for scheduling this game around the Tim Howard to Colorado announcement. I think that's why you saw an early season national televised game between DC United and Colorado. Uh, so good job getting the Tim Howard exclusive. However, the product on the field that we were all subjected to was less than optimal, let's say. It was not a pretty game. I think in the first half, Lamar Nagel's passing chart was 4 for 14. And we thought, man, uh, had a rough first half there, and then we looked at his counterpart, Kevin Doyle's passing chart, and it was an identical passing percentage. You have the lone striker for each team, around 28% passing accuracy. That's not a good sign for an attractive soccer game. Yeah, I mean, neither team was just able to keep the ball for more than three or four or five passes. Nobody could string anything together. I don't think I've seen a game with that many turnovers since I saw my little brother's U7 game like 15 years ago. And, you know, to have that on national TV is unfortunate. And hopefully any uh, any people who are less than familiar with MLS weren't completely turned off to the league and will never watch another game. 
And another product of that helter-skelter ugly game was for the second straight match, DC United third-string goalkeeper turned starting goalkeeper Travis Wara was not really tested. He faced one shot on goal. It went in. I wouldn't say it was particularly his fault. Dylan Powers' header, he perhaps could have done better. It was in his six-yard box, and any time that happens, you wonder if the keeper could have claimed it, but it wasn't a howler by any means. I wouldn't put the blame on him for it. But the more important thing is we just don't know what DC United is really getting out of Wara because he's played two matches and he basically hasn't been tested in any substantial way. Yeah, there was one play in the second half where Dominic Baji got behind the United defense and I thought Wara did really well to come off his line and clear the ball before Baji could get in on a breakaway. But otherwise, that was about it. And I think we're all sort of waiting for the other shoe to drop with Wara. Uh, you know, it wasn't this game, it wasn't the New England game, but there's this suspicion that if he does get tested a lot, it may go poorly. But, you know, maybe we're underselling him a little bit. Maybe he'll surprise us, but we're still waiting for that opportunity to see what he really has. And the fact that they went out a couple weeks ago and picked up U.S. under-23 national team goalkeeper Charlie Horton that makes you think that they they want a more proven uh, backup, a guy with a little more ability. Because, frankly, as we talked about in the last show, uh, with the current goalkeeper setup, with Dykstra, Hamid, Wara, Horton, someone's going to be the odd man out roster-wise when Hamid returns from injury. Maybe it'll be Dykstra now because he himself is out long-term with uh, a surgery, but it, there was a, a while there where it looked like DC United was paving the road for Wara to be the guy who got axed come the summer. And now he's the starting goalkeeper. It's been an eventful few weeks for him. And you have to think he is feeling the pressure to impress not only because this is his first chance, but because if, if it doesn't work out, he could find himself out of a job once Bill Hamid and Andrew Dykstra are back from injury. Yeah. And I will say the more games that go by without him getting tested, the more time Charlie Horton has to kind of acclimate himself to playing again uh, because he hasn't been with the team since November. Uh, and so I think Olsen is right to hold him out at least to get him a, a little bit more practice time. But let's say Wara does have a bad performance against FC Dallas. Well, now you can really look at putting Horton in because – at that point, by the game after FC Dallas, he will have been with the team for over a month. And at that point, you would think he would be ready to go. Um, but let's let's move on to uh, the attack, which I think has been a, a little bit of a concern. Uh, you know, when United got their, their late equalizer, it snapped a 200-and-some-odd-minute drought. Uh, their only other MLS goal of the season was four minutes in. Um, three goals in five matches in all competitions, if I'm counting correctly. Yeah, and 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 both goals, I think you could say, you know, were a, a product of a mistake that the other team made. Now, of course, you want to be able to punish teams for mistakes, so I don't think you can kill United for scoring goals on, off other teams' mistakes. But you know, they haven't really created a lot on their own. The first goal, it was a turnover in midfield, and it was a nice shot from Nagel, maybe. Uh, Dan Kennedy could have done better for L.A. And then, of course, yesterday you saw Zach McMath 
who had maybe one of the worst days any professional athlete can have um, between the Howard signing and his howler. Um, but, you know, are, are we concerned that this team is not able to generate enough chances right now? I think so. Uh, there are a few games in, and there just hasn't been a lot of promising chemistry. And I think that's the real issue. We haven't seen combinations between Espindola and Acosta, largely because they haven't been able to be on the field with Espindola's injury and with Acosta getting yanked early in the second half of uh, their last few games, which is another issue we can talk about. And the combination of Acosta and Nagel hasn't shown much promise either. Really, their attack generated... A lot of clever play from Chris Rolfe on one flank. A lot of uh, very good runs down the flank from Patrick Niarco on the other side. But those are isolated individual moments that are creating your chances. You want to have more of a buildup. And they're just not getting that out of the unit they have. And I think the issue is uh, the lack of chemistry up top between Acosta and whoever he's partnered with at a, a given time, and a, uh, a lack of a killer instinct, perhaps, from Acosta in the final third. We haven't seen him really take shots or hit the final ball too well. And then also, Nick DeLeon in central midfield continues to be an up-and-down experiment where you're not sure exactly what you're going to get from him game in, game out. Yeah, I think we were really encouraged by DeLeon's first game against the Galaxy, but he's followed that up with, with back-to-back kind of indifferent showings. I think the the intricacy of his passing is some is a part of his game that is kind of lacking, and I think he has the propensity to have a number of kind of frustrating turnovers in that final third and not connecting attacks the way maybe a more natural center mid or number 10 would do. Um, But I think there are a couple of DC United starters that we were wondering if maybe they could be better used at a different position. Uh, De Leon, it's it's an interesting situation because, of course, he is more of a natural winger. That's the only position he's played in is career for the most part up until this season when he's sort of been moved inside. Um, And Lamar Nagel is a guy that we saw play a lot of wing during his time in Seattle. And he's been playing up top with Acosta. um, And, you know, maybe forward isn't the most productive position for him. You know, maybe he doesn't have the holdup play in his game. And of course, Acosta being at about five foot, even, you know, he's not going to be a guy that can hold the ball up very well either. So you wonder where, where those two might fit in best in United's attack. He's not really a traditional holdup play guy, but I'd like to see more of Chris Rolfe up top because he, he can possess the ball. He's not going to body up against a center back the way an, an Alvaro Saborio will, but he's someone who has the, the technical ability to find pockets of space, make himself available. And he's someone who has shown a little more chemistry with the other forwards so far. So perhaps you move Rolf up top and give Nagel a chance out wide. Uh, for Delion, uh, you know, there, there's a, a bit of a lack of options at the moment with Marcus Halsty facing injury and fitness issues as well. Maybe uh, Julian Buescher gets a shot there. Maybe Jared Jeffrey gets a shot that he's been waiting for for uh, I would I wouldn't hold years. my breath on that one. <laughs> I'm I'm not anticipating Jared Jeffrey being out there. Anytime, I was going to so. throw out Colin Martin, but we saw him at, in a walking boot at the game, so that 
doesn't bode well for him. Yes, uh, we, we have received no further clarification, right, from DC United. We asked. Uh, yeah, I have not heard back. Um, I'll try to get out the training in the next day or two and see if I can get an update on that matter. Yeah, I mean, I, I doubt that there is a ton of fans clamoring for this information, but when you see a member of the senior team walking around in a walking boot during the game and you haven't heard any news of an injury, it makes you question what's going on there. Yeah, that that's rough for him, whatever it is. Hopefully, for Colin's sake, it's nothing too bad, but he's in his uh, third third year, fourth year? I'm losing track now, but he's been on the team for a while and hasn't really gotten any sort of extended run. And at some point, especially if they're getting mixed results in central midfield from the current uh, players they have there, I'd like to see him get in there and get a chance, but... You know, I've, I've thrown out a lot of different names. and uh, Are I, any of them very inspiring options? I I, mean. I'm, in, I'm intrigued by Buescher. I was out at training last week, and he hit a few balls in their 11v11 uh, drill that were pretty remarkable. He hit a full-field switch off the volley that was on a dime. to uh, He was on the right flank on a dime to the left winger. And uh, that's something that, you know, it's just one play in the training session, but it it shows there's a mouse skill there. He obviously scored that incredible goal in the Champions League, so maybe he's someone uh, United fans would like to see more of. But I'm just, I'm not sold on De Leon as a central midfielder. I think maybe he could add a little more to the attack as a, if he went back to his traditional flank spot. And I'm interested to see how long Olsen sticks with this experiment and to be fair, there have been moments when De Leon played well in there and showed a lot of promise, so maybe it is an experiment worth toughing through if there are some rough patches. Yeah, I don't think that you're going to see De Leon moved out wide anytime soon unless he has a number of really disastrous performances in a row. I think you do sort of have to allow for this period of adjustment considering he's been in the league for four or five years and has only played out wide, mostly and mid in midfield, a couple various games playing at right back. But yeah. the games at right back, by the way, have always had me very intrigued, but I think I, that's a long shot. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, he wouldn't be the first guy who has shown some ability at outside midfield, but maybe didn't have certain parts of his game required to be a top level player and, try him out at defense, but I think right now, you know, Sean Franklin is one of the more solid members of the United starting 11, so you want to give De Leon a shot uh, to play some center mid and see what he's got, but uh, it's going to be an interesting development to watch, see if, if he can really develop those aspects of the game to become a, a top-level center midfielder. Um, looking ahead to, to this Saturday, uh, United gets uh, what what would normally be one of the stronger teams in the league, but one that's completely decimated by international call-ups. Um, I guess we can debate at another time whether MLS is being smart playing through all these international dates. I'll, I'll jump in. There are only three games this week. These are the teams that voluntarily chose to play through the international window. And for DC United... It makes sense to an extent. They weren't even sure if they were going to lose Birnbaum, and he really was the only realistic candidate at this point to miss the game. 
So if I'm DC United, yeah, like why add another midweek game in the summer when you can just go through it and you're barely going to be missing anyone? So why did FC Dallas say yes? That's the part I don't understand. Let's list them off. They will be missing Jesse Gonzalez, Walker Zimmerman, Maynor Figueroa, Moises Hernandez, Atiba Harris, Kellen Acosta, Tesho Akindele. So that is, I believe, four out of their five starting backline, including their goalkeeper. If, yes. Chris uh, Seitz time. <laughs> I, was, I actually forgot who they still had on their roster. Chris Seitz, uh, you know, he's a, he's a capable enough backup. Returning to uh, the University of Maryland region where he starred. Um, and they do still have Zach Lloyd. They do have Zach Lloyd, who has uh, just been sitting on the bench this year, right? Yeah, I think so. I think so. And uh, as as Thomas well knows, and any listeners of the show know, uh, Thomas's continuing annoyance that Matt Hedges is still with FC Dallas over this international yes. call up, although over this international break, although uh, maybe his uh, spectacular own goal <laughs> last week might have. Uh, yeah. Dampen that a little bit. I've been all aboard the Matt Hedges bandwagon for a while, and the own goal had me dampening my enthusiasm a little bit, but still, you would rather have Ventura Alvarado and Michael Orozco, who are sitting on the bench for teams in Mexico over MLS Defender of the Year finalist, but we'll talk about that later when we get into the national team discussion. Yeah, we'll get to that, but it'll be interesting to see for for United, uh, considering all of the aforementioned issues and attack, whether they can take advantage of an FC Dallas backline who are going to be missing so many key pieces. Although at the same time, you know, having Zach Lloyd and Matt Hedges as your starting center backs isn't a, a sign necessarily of a defense that's going to be extremely vulnerable. And they've got Ryan Hollingshead, who actually was, I thought, one of the under-the-radar top fullbacks in MLS last year. So they have a lot of depth there, and that helps. And then you look at the attacks still, Fabian Castillo, Mauro Diaz, uh, Carlos Grezo in that uh, two-way midfield spot, Maxi Arruti up top. There are a lot of weapons in that Dallas team, so this won't be an easy game for United, despite the wealth of absences for FC Dallas. I think this might be the game where we finally see whether Travis Wara is an MLS-level goalkeeper. Yes, I think he'll be tested, and I think Dallas will know that. Oscar Parejo's the type of coach, I think, who will look at a scouting report, really go in-depth, and tell his team, look, I haven't seen anything out of this keeper, let's... Let's test him. Let's launch shots from 30 yards and just see what happens. Yeah, that's what we were saying New England should have done a couple weeks ago and didn't, and what Colorado just wasn't capable of doing on Sunday. Um, But let's move on to the big MLS news of the weekend, the uh, Colorado Rapids announcing the signing of Tim Howard, Um, Zach McMath promptly going out and having an unfortunate howler to complete an unfortunate day for him. Uh, But... Uh, the, the the bigger news, obviously, it was the the addition of Howard. Um, I mean, it, I think that we can all see based on the salary that Howard is on somewhere reported, I believe, between two point five and two point eight million per year, something like that. Which is a number that uh, Kurt Austin, the general manager of Swoop Park Rangers, Kansas City's USL affiliate, he pointed out that Tim Howard's salary is more than 
all other 19 MLS starting goalkeepers at the moment combined. Yeah, so I, I think it, it almost goes without saying that the Rapids are overpaying for Howard. The question is, is he a guy that's worth overpaying for? On the field, no. I mean, they can get by with a goalkeeper without shelling out millions of dollars. Zach McMath, despite his error in the match on Sunday, can get the job done. Tim Howard is not, I haven't even done the math, but I'm sure it's something like 30 times better than Zach McMath. Right. But in terms of marketing and buzz for a franchise that has struggled in terms of momentum in terms of attention, in terms of season ticket sales and attendance in general, they need something. And they've really made an effort this offseason adding Jermaine Jones and Tim Howard going after guys like Carlos Vela and Alan Polito and Alejandro Bedoya. The Rapids clearly wanted to make some moves that would allow them to make a splash in that market and reignite this franchise that really has been – you know, an afterthought in MLS since they won that MLS Cup five, six years ago. Yeah, and I think definitely Howard's going to add a locker room presence. Uh, he's a guy that people on the Rapids are going to listen to, you know. And, and they have a young unit back there. They're starring center backs right now, are both, I think, 24 years old. Uh, so it's it's a team where they – they also play some young fullbacks at times with uh, Marlon Harrison has been playing out there. And they they have a lot of promising players in the back line who could benefit from having a Tim Howard barking instructions and words of wisdom at them. Yeah, the one interesting aspect in terms of marketing for Colorado is, of course, Tim Howard – is one of the most recognizable, if not the most recognizable name in American soccer right now. Somebody that the casual sports fan is going to know. Uh, my question is, do people pay money to go watch a goalkeeper play? That's a good question. I don't know if they pay money specifically to go and say, man, we're going to see some spectacular saves from Timmy <laughs> Howard today. I, but, I, I, don't, I hope nobody is going expecting to see a repeat of the Belgium game every time they right. go and want to rap, a Rapids game because I, I think that a lot of casual sports fans know him mostly from that particular game. But I think there are fans who just enjoy the star power and – want to go and see if they can get his autograph and just say that they saw Tim Howard play soccer. Uh, that's really all I've got in terms of really when you boil down whether people will pay to see him. But in general, I think the value is more in terms of the media attention they'll get. The local TV stations in Colorado that probably never talk about the Rapids and have been giving – a lot of airtime the past few days, and we'll be doing so again when he actually arrives in the summer. Definitely, definitely. And I think Denver is a really tough market uh, for the Rapids. First of all, they play out in the suburbs, uh, so it's hard to get people out to the game. And this is a, a, a city that has 
all four major professional sports aside from MLS. They have the Broncos, who are the Super Bowl champions. So it's, it's hard to generate buzz when you compare it to a place like, let's say, Portland, where the only other game in town is the Trailblazers, more or less. Yeah, it's... Yeah, the Rapids are an MLS original, and they've gone through a lot of different identities as a franchise. They've completely changed their colors and their mascot and gone through all these different things to try to figure out what this franchise is. And right now, they're trying to build something. Uh, Pablo Mastroni talked a lot about it in his post-game press conference, largely because None of us media wanted to ask about that awful game that we had just seen. <laughs> so we asked a lot of big picture questions. But I'm intrigued, and that's something I haven't been able to say about the Rapids in a long time. Right. Uh, so let's move on to the, the national team. Uh, we have a, a couple of World Cup qualifiers coming up, both against Guatemala. Uh, it's going to be away on Friday night before they come back to Columbus to face them. On Tuesday night, uh, the U.S. started out their uh, their group with a, a win and a tie. So, you know, if they get a couple wins in these games, they will all but or maybe officially clinch a spot in the, the hex. I'm sure that's something they would like to take care of. Uh, when you consider the last time around at this stage, they had to go down to the wire in, Antig- in Antigua and Barbuda and get saved by... Of course, Alan Gordon and Eddie Johnson. Um, so I think they, they would rather uh, make this a little more comfortable this time around. Uh, so we have a, a roster from Jurgen Klinsmann, and as always, we have a lot of questionable uh, <laughs> roster-building decisions from Jurgen Klinsmann. I like how at this point, when we are awaiting a roster from Klinsmann, it's not a matter of, are there going to be any head-scratchers or surprises? It's, all right, what are going to be the head-scratchers and surprises? Right, and this time around, I think it wasn't necessarily uh, the names on the roster, although there were a couple, but it was more just the makeup that we are questioning. Uh, Some of the positions, particularly left-back, which we'll get into, where there's just... No depth, and then other positions like center back where there is way too much depth. (laughs) Right. There's been this pattern with Klinsman, and uh, maybe at some point I should try to compile all the instances where this has happened, where he builds a roster, 20-some players, in this case 26, for just two games, and it is overloaded in one position, But then at another spot, like you mentioned, left back, if Fabian Johnson can't go in this in this uh, game Friday at Guatemala, they have to do a late call up because Edgar Castillo is the only other player on the roster capable of playing left back, except maybe Steve Birnbaum. And the fact that Birnbaum, that that he's in this discussion right now is pretty ridiculous, but there's literally (laughs) no one else on the roster who has ever played left back at any level, as far as I know. I wonder how U.S. national team fans are going to feel when the starters come out on Friday night and Edgar Castillo is starting (laughs) at left back. And and that's another issue. I, I assume that Fabian Johnson is the preferred starter, but he's carrying a knock into this, uh, into these two games. So, 
you would think Klinsman would want to have an insurance policy, especially when he's calling in 26 players for two games. I mean, they ask you to get through an entire World Cup with only 23 players, but he's prepared to go into this game with with Edgar Castillo as his only healthy left back. This is a guy who has consistently struggled when he's played for the national team over the past few years. He hasn't even gotten a call-up since before the 2014 World Cup. It's been, I think, almost exactly two years since his last match for the U.S. And I know he's been starting for the top team in Mexico right now, Monterey. But that's, Which came as quite the shock to me, I have to say. <laughs> but that's something that I think Klinsman perhaps overvalues. Liga MX, in my opinion, is marginally better than MLS, but it's not like it's the Premier League, where if you're a starter for a Premier League team, you're definitely U.S. national team quality. Or if you're sitting on the bench, you can still be national team quality because the league is has such a high bar. Liga MX is you know, it's just a, a level above MLS. I wouldn't say, man, Sal Zizzo is starting at right back for the league-leading Red Bulls. He's got to be on the U.S. <laughs> national team. And I think that's pretty much the same discussion we're having. It's, that's maybe a more extreme version of it, but I don't know if Castillo is the guy you want to go into this game with as the only healthy left back on your roster. Why not? use one of those 26 slots to bring in a Jorge Villafania who is really thriving in uh in Mexico and as as you know has a few other reasons why the US would want to get him in the picture. Well, right, and it's interesting because you mentioned how Klinsman seems to overvalue Liga MX a little bit. Well, here you go. Here's a guy who's doing extremely well in Liga MX and has been on the US roster for a, or on the US radar for a while but just hasn't got called up, but more than that, this is a guy who is eligible for Mexico as well, and he's basically said that he's just waiting to see who calls him up first, and yet uh, they continually bypass him, and it seems strange for a guy who's still relatively young who could help them out. Um, you know, just looking at this roster, trying to see any other left-back options, I mean, basically... DeAndre Edlin, I don't know. I mean, he, I, he's an outside back. That's the only reason right. I say that. Michael but, Roscoe also has played some right back. Yeah. Uh, but then the thing is, there aren't many right backs. You, you're yeah. going to need them at right back because there there's no fullback depth at all, really. Unless he really is going to go outside the box and play like Alejandro Bedoya left back or something crazy like that. And again... 26 players. Why did you bring uh, all of these center backs? They have Jeff Cameron, Matt Beasler, John Brooks, Omar Gonzalez, Steve Birnbaum, Michael Roscoe, Ventura Alvarado, the last two of whom are sitting on the bench for their Liga MX clubs. I just don't get that unless Klinsman really sees Steve Birnbaum as a left back. Maybe. Uh, he played well as a right back in the January camp against Canada, but that would surprise me. Yeah, definitely. And then one of the center backs that you mentioned, uh, John Brooks, we were discussing before the show if maybe since we're not entirely sure if he's going to get the start uh, in the first game against Guatemala, maybe he would have been better off going with the U23s. Now, I think I've seen some 
thoughts out there that, that Brooks, because he's playing really well with Hertha and starting every game, that he's a lock starter for the national team right now. But personally, I think that we have seen a good chemistry and good performances consistently from Matt Beasler and Jeff Cameron as the starting center back duo. And as well as John Brooks is playing at the club level, I think that you still have to ride Beasler and Cameron as your starters at center back until they prove otherwise, because center back has been a really unsettled position for the national team for the last year or two. And towards the end of the summer, into the fall, into the, the, uh, the one game playoff against Mexico, I think you saw, uh, Beasler and, and, and Cameron really emerge as the preferred center back duo. I think Beasler and Cameron should be the center back duo for these games. I think if something goes wrong, if there's an injury, you could make an argument that Omar Gonzalez should be in there considering how well he's been playing in Liga MX. So I think at best, it's really a toss up between Beasler and Brooks. Obviously, Brooks is playing for one of the top teams in Germany right now and is in good form, but he doesn't have the experience playing alongside Jeff Cameron. I know they have a couple times in the past, including the Ghana game and the World Cup, but hasn't been often. So do you want to disrupt that chemistry going on the road and World Cup qualifying? And more importantly, if there's any question about this, why don't you just send Brooks to go play with the U23s and get that Olympic spot. I think the only reason you bring Brooks is if you think he is definitively better than your other options, that sending him to the U23s would be a major uh, problem for the senior national team. And I don't think that's the case. I think Beasler and Cameron, at worst, are capable of getting the job done. And at best actually are the best duo, no matter what the circumstances. Right. And they, they have this weird wrinkle with the rosters for these sets of games where after the first Guatemala game and after the first leg for the U23s against Colombia, they're actually able to move players between the two rosters. Uh, the problem with that is the U.S. might be down 5-0 after the first leg in Colombia and bringing John Brooks might not matter for the second leg. Um, this was made even more of an issue because Cameron Carter-Vickers, who with Matt Miazga was the U23 team's regular center back duo, is now injured. Um, so you have an opening at that center back spot for the U23s. And, you know, facing such a tough game in Columbia, you wonder if Brooks might have been better off utilized there. My thoughts exactly. Again, I just... I don't quite see the rationale with that move. No matter what you think of Brooks, Beasler and Cameron can get the job done, and you want to be in the Olympics. The U.S. hasn't been in the Olympics since 2008. They failed to qualify. Or, yeah, they failed to qualify last cycle, and it just is a, it's a goal that they need to set for themselves, that they need to be back in this tournament. It's a tournament that means more to the U.S. than most other teams around the world because of the exposure the Olympics gets from an American audience. People are going to be polling for the U.S. They're not going to really register that's a U23 tournament and that it pales in comparison to the World Cup. So if I'm the U.S., 
I want to do whatever I can to be in this tournament. So to have a player like Brooks be pulled away to play in a semifinal rounds World Cup qualifier when they have an option who's arguably better than him and Beasler at their disposal, again, I just don't quite get it. Yeah, and Brooks is a guy who, over the years, we've actually seen do better for his club than, than he has for the U.S. So it'll be interesting to see. Um, you know, one name that we saw on the roster that I think a lot of fans were relieved to see is Clint Dempsey uh, because he hasn't been with the team since the one-game playoff against Mexico. And I think there there was some concern, perhaps, that Klinsman was trying to fade Dempsey out uh, of the picture entirely. Uh, you know, Dempsey's 33 now. Clearly, he's not quite the, the force that he was. But I think that when you look at the, the options on the roster and attack, it's still... It's still pretty thin, and this is a team that still relied on Dempsey, especially in the the Gold Cup last summer. The, he scored almost all, all their goals, so it, it, it seemed a little premature to be sending him away from the national team for good. Especially when you look at the timeline, they have the Copa America this summer. Clint Dempsey is very clearly still good enough to contribute to this U.S. team at the Copa America, unless he has a major decline in form over the next three months. And the World Cup is now two years away. He'll be 35. A lot of teams had guys who were 35, 36 years old at the last World Cup. The team that won the World Cup had a guy starting at that age. He was a role player who was in and out of the starting lineup and didn't go more than 60 minutes in many games, but maybe that's the type of role you groom for a guy like Dempsey. So, again, I'm looking a little ahead here, but to think that he he needs to be phased out before Russia, I don't get that, especially if you're trying to force it. If it happens organically, then fine, but don't just say Clint Dempsey will be 35 at the next World Cup, so time to uh, just cut the cord, which... As you mentioned, it looked like they were considering doing when he got left off the qualifying roster in November. So it's good to have him back in the mix, and I'm interested to see how they use him. If he continues to just play as a traditional forward, as he has almost the entire time during Klinsman's tenure, or if they experiment playing him in different positions, perhaps out wide or in a deeper midfield role now that he's been playing those positions for the Sounders. And I'm, I'm curious to see if Bobby Wood gets a start uh, because Josie Altor is just coming back from an injury. You would think that uh, a healthy Josie is still ahead of Wood on the depth chart. Um, but Wood is a guy who the last few times he's played for the national team has really made a mark, particularly in the game against Mexico. Uh, but you go back to the summer and the two friendlies against uh, Germany and the Netherlands, and then he was left off the the Gold Cup squad, which was kind of a curious decision. Um, But he's been in really good form for uh, Union Berlin in the German second division. I think he scored something like seven goals in his last six games. Um, So, And he's at uh, an age, 23, where he still has a lot more room to grow potentially. So uh, I think that he's a guy that U.S. fans can be excited about, and I wonder how prominently Klinsman's going to feature him in these two games. I would think at the very least he's going to be the first forward off the bench. I'm interested in seeing if he plays alongside Dempsey, which is something we only got glimpses of over the past 
uh, year or so since Wood has burst onto the national team scene. Dempsey and Altador have had their issues chemistry-wise, particularly in that Confederations Cup playoff. So if we see Dempsey and Wood, perhaps that's a more natural combination uh, for the U.S. going forward. And speaking of older guys that are still on the roster, um, Kyle Beckerman's still getting called up. And, you know, we were talking about this a little bit before the show, uh, especially with Jermaine Jones out. You know, we were looking at, you know, some options to play in that central defensive midfield role. And, you know, you can criticize Klinsman for, for bringing Kyle Beckerman in when over the last few appearances he's had with the national team, it's looked like maybe it was time for his international career to be over. But on the other hand, I'm not sure that there really are a lot of viable options right now when you look at a guy like Will Trapp, who's with the U23s. Uh, Perry Kitchens, another guy, has been called up, but he's just getting acclimated in Scotland. Um, you know, Danny Williams, a potential option. Uh, he was left off the roster. He's having an okay season with Reading, but hasn't really made his mark on the national team level. And you go through these options, and maybe I'm missing someone, but... It, maybe Beckerman still is the guy, especially with Jones out. I think this may be Beckerman's last hurrah. I thought the CONCACAF was. <laughs> How many times have we said this? <laughs> I thought the CONCACAF Cup was You thought was the World was Cup was. <laughs> but he's a guy who I do think they need for these two games, partially because of the circumstances that Klinsman has created. He didn't call a guy like Dax McCarthy into the January camp, which I still don't really get. I think McCarthy has been playing at a higher level than Beckerman for the last couple years now. And that's not really a slight toward Beckerman at all. Dax McCarthy has been playing at a higher level than any other defensive midfielder in MLS. Uh, he was a best 11 guy last season, a big part of that Red Bulls team that won the Supporters' Shield. So the fact that he didn't get the January call-up means you can't really consider him for these qualifiers. And at that point, when you rule out the guys you mentioned, Kitchen, Trap, Beckerman makes sense for these games. However, going into the Copa America, I'd really like to see someone like a Will Trap get a shot at that position to partner with Michael Bradley and show what he can do. Yeah, and we've we've seen this pattern start to emerge with the national team where if you're a new player and you're not called in for the January camp, then you pretty much have to wait until the next January camp and hope that you get your chance then because Klinsman is not bringing in a lot of new guys to the fold. I think Darlington Nadby was a rare exception to that rule last year. Yeah, and Matt Miazga, both of whom had... Uh, eligibility issues. Uh, Nagby had just become naturalized, and Miazga was a dual national. They wanted to cap tie. So aside from a situation like that, you're right. It does seem like you get in during the January camp where you don't get into the picture at all. Right, and then there are a couple guys that he's brought in from the January camp. Burnbaum, uh, David Bingham, Ethan Finley. Lee uh, Wynn. Lee Wynn, guys that you can clearly see as guys who did well in the January camp and are now going to move forward as part of the picture. But if you're Dax McCarty, not that I think you're holding out much hope at this point anyways, but you're probably not going to get another call-up until next January at the earliest. And Dax McCarty is pretty much at the same age Beckerman was this time last cycle. So I don't think the door is completely shut for him, 
but it is a little disappointing that his fantastic MLS season wasn't rewarded with a shot with the national team. Yeah, all right. I think we've talked enough. I think we've managed to fill up enough airspace without Pablo and the soundboard. So, uh, unless good job. Pablo has gone into this after the fact and inserted countless Ben Olsen soundboard references. Okay, let's let's give Pablo another five seconds to put more soundboard stuff in. This podcast was terrible. What if he doesn't listen this far? <laughs> I, I actually—that's just silence. I don't think he was even listening at the beginning. So we'll we'll see what happens. But uh, thanks for joining us, and uh, we will chat with you guys again next week.